the lady comes up, you know, and she's drinking a can of diet soda saying, <laughs> what? $5 a dozen for eggs. I would never pay $5 a dozen for eggs. I'm saying, ma'am, there's more nutrition in one of my eggs than there is in that dollar can of soda you've got in your hand. It's a matter of values. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. It's the episode we've all been waiting for. We have the biggest name in regenerative agriculture, farmer Joel Salatin. You may have heard of him in Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, or the award-winning documentary, Food, Inc. Joel spent the better part of his life transforming this dire, dead piece of land in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley into one of the most biodiverse and celebrated farms in the country, Polyface Farm. Today, his family farm serves more than 8,000 families, 50 restaurants, 10 retail outlets, and a farmer's market with salad bar beef, pigerator pork, pastured poultry, and forestry products. The cattle, chickens, turkeys, rabbits, and pigs on the farm all help to build up healthy soil and in turn sequester carbon. So how did they do it? Well, that's what we'll get into today. Joel explains how his family regenerated this piece of land and created this thriving food system. He also explains how we ended up with the chemical-based industrial food system we have today and what it'll really take logistically, financially, and personally for each one of us to shift to a carbon-based food system to feed the world. Okay, I hope that whets your appetite. If you're new to the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for more delicious interviews like this. Let's dig in. Dreams really come true today. We have here on Farm to Future, Farmer Joel Salatin. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you. It's a delight and an honor to be with you. Yes. So for those that don't know, Joel, you're a third generation farmer. And I was reading that your grandfather invented the, what was it? The handheld sprinkler or the, the movable sprinkler? The, the mobile, the one that rolls up the garden hose, you know, as it walks through, he called it the sprink reel and actually patented it. Wow. Uh, and then your father also, he built a farm in Venezuela where you were born. I was wondering if you could share if there's a particular lesson or two that you took from your, your father, maybe your grandfather also about farming. And that's really stuck with you to this day. Yeah, probably my most poignant memory. You know, things happen to you sometimes when you're a child and you don't realize their significance until later looking back. And for me, so yeah, you mentioned that we were in Venezuela. We lost a farm down there in a, in a junta and dad was 42, lost all of his life savings, lost everything. And mm -hmm. we, we had to flee the country and came back to the U.S. And, and he was still wanting to go back. And so that's why we settled in Virginia and not in the Midwest where both my mom and dad's families were from out in Ohio and Indiana. And uh, so we got on this place here in the Shenandoah Valley. It was the worst farm in the whole county. I mean, gullies, rock piles. It, it had a long legacy of renting to neighbors, absentee ownership. Mm -hmm. And so they just, they just raped it, you know? And so it, that made it very cheap and horrible land. So here I am, you know, I'm what five, six years old, and it, it's just uh, rock gullies and dirt clods, terrible stuff. So we'd go visit grandpa in Indiana, and my grandfather was an early, was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming Magazine in like 1940, 48 or something like that. 
and he had his big compost piles. He had, you know, and, and you could go there, you could just stick your hand down in his soil, you know, it was like soil compost, you know, and, and, and the best part about it was it was a large garden. I don't know how big it was. Of course, you know, when you're a little kid, everything looks big, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it was probably a quarter acre, which is a big garden. He sold produce in the, you know, in the community and stuff and had beehives and chickens and bramble fruits, all sorts of things. But around this, this quarter acre garden, he had a tea trellis grape arbor. In a tea trellis grape arbor, the grapes are up horizontal above your head they're dangling down so as a little kid i could just reach up there and of course you know you got all those bees and all that dripping aroma and and what struck me was the juxtaposition between our land and grandpa's land looking back on it now i realized that my profound childhood fantasy not even articulated at the time was I want our farm to be like grandpa's. I want to have abundance and and a womb that's just full of life. Can we do that with our place? Can we make it like grandpa's place? And and now at this stage in my life, we did in fact do that. You know, we can stick our hand down in the soil. And so the, the beauty is that land can heal. It's pretty cool. I can almost feel like I can smell the aroma of the, the bees and the, yeah. the flowers. Maybe you can walk us through what you've done with Polyface Farms, because it really is incredible. And for some of the audience who aren't as familiar with regenerative agriculture, perhaps you can paint us a picture of how you took that piece of land and turned it to what is Polyface Farms today? Sure. So early on, so, so my dad was an accountant. Mom was a, was a high school phys ed teacher. And so they worked off farm in order to pay the mortgage. Remember, we lost everything in the upheaval of Venezuela. So we had to start over from scratch. But dad was, was on, on, how do I make a living on this place? You know, look, we yeah. got this. How do I make a living? And so he actually brought in both private and public agriculture consultants, the extension service, the you know, soil conservation service, the forestry service, and private agriculture consultants. Every single one, everyone had the same message. Graze the trees, plant corn, buy fertilizer, build feedlots, borrow more money, and use chemicals. And uh, of course, dad's father, like I said, had been an organic gardener back when it was just starting. And so dad, he came to this as an economist, realizing that chemical agriculture is like a drug addiction. You've got to keep buying more powerful, more stuff. You're on a treadmill. You can't get ahead of it. So we started looking at, well, how does nature heal ecology? You know, what are the templates? What are the patterns we see in nature? And there are not that many of them. I mean, one is animals. You know, there's no animalist ecology. And so, well, let's have animals. Well, what do we notice about animals in nature? Well, they they move around, you know, they're not confined in buildings. And so, well, if they move around, well, we've got to get them uh, water, shelter. And so we started developing portable electric fencing systems, portable water systems. And well, how does the soil build? Well, it builds with carbon. It doesn't build with 1010 chemical fertilizer. It builds with biomass that rots on site. So we, we bought a chipper and we began chipping uh, tree branches and dead trees and janky trees and developing carbon that we then started composting under our animals and adding that compost back to the fields. And the thing about animals is they're, they're diversified. You don't go to nature and just see one species, you see multi. 
So we, well, let's have more species of animals. We were just kind of looking at what are these templates of nature and how do we mimic that? We were not trying to invent anything. We were trying to localize and in real time capture those centuries old patterns. A lot of people don't realize that North America 500 years ago produced more nutrition than it does today. Now, it wasn't all eaten by people. You know, there were 2 million wolves that needed 20 pounds of meat a day. There were 200 million beavers that ate more vegetation than all the people in North America today. There were uh, passenger pigeons. I mean, Audubon sat under a tree in 1820, recorded in his diary that he couldn't see the sun for three days because of a flock of <laughs> birds that flew over him. Uh, that was before Tyson and Cargill and everybody. And so as we were looking, we, we said, look, what are these principles of nature that make it so abundant? And so we just began mimicking those. We got electric fence. We started moving the cows every day. We didn't get that done until I was out of college. Uh, so this took, you know, a couple of decades. We, we did portable shade mobiles. Then I started, I started raising chickens on, on pasture in, in mobile field shelters. This choreography, we call it ballet in the pasture. These complex synergistic relationships began paying off and the, and the fertility began coming up. You know, I can remember when we couldn't feed 10 cows. Now we feed 100 on the same wow. acreage. It's the same rain and sunshine, but a very different soil structure. And in my lifetime, we've taken this from an average of 1% organic matter in the soil to 8% organic matter which means that every acre is holding 140,000 gallons more water now than it did half a century ago. So wow. uh, it's, been, it's been really dramatic. Another, another principle that dad came up with, you know, as a small farmer, we can't be in the commodity business because the margin is too small. So mm. nature has a pretty tight economy. Nature doesn't move carbon very far. It doesn't move milk very far, meat very far plants very far. Everything is pretty much grown and consumed in a bioregion. So we started marketing to local people here in the area and developed a, you know, a kind of a brand. And today we service about 8,000 families. Uh, I don't know what, 40 wow. restaurants, several institutions. And we have about 23, 24 full-time salaries that come off of this little farm. We didn't set out for that. Teresa and I just, when I got out of, as I grew up as a teenager, my mind was full of, I want to farm. I want to farm full time. I don't want to do the dad thing where you're commuting to town and being a weekend warrior on the farm. I want to do it full time. We were able to, to kind of jump with a head start. I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, mom and dad paid the mortgage. So I was able to come on to a piece of raw land with that degree of head start. And then Teresa and I, we lived in the farmhouse attic for seven years and drove a $50 car. And if you didn't grow it, you didn't eat it. We didn't have a TV, still don't have a TV. We bought uh, secondhand clothes. See my shirt here. My shirt here says, says Mike. It says Mike. You see Mike. <laughs> um, we, we, get, we get secondhand. We still do, you know, we, we, um, that kind of frugality and very strategic planning and development of portable infrastructure. It's now paid off and we're blessed beyond anything we can imagine. It's been a, it's been a good time. That's incredible what you've been able to accomplish. And 
I mean, it, it has taken time, you know, you've dedicated much of your life to this, but you can definitely see the fruits of that labor, literally. And just before we move on, I just want to clarify the the movement of the animals across that soil. They help to aerate the soil and put nutrients back into it, right? Can, can you kind of sure, explain how sure. that works? Okay. So if you look at a, like a nature documentary on, let's say the Serengeti in Africa, I mean, that's if you want to go see like the most native uh, primal choreography, the Serengeti is where it is. Those animals are moving based on the season, on predator push. And so these animals are moving, mobbing and mowing as they go. And that allows where they were yesterday or the day before to, to have a rest period. The idea of movement has, is twofold. One is the animals are on fresh ground which means they're not getting toxins and pathogens. You, you create host-free periods for the area for all the pathogens to die out or at least lose virulence because there's no host anymore. So you, you get sanitary, fresh ground and fresh grass, fresh forage for the animals uh, because animals, you know, they, they like their ice cream better than liver and onions too. <laughs> and so they get the fresh salad bar. That's on the one hand. The other side of the teeter-totter is that you give the land a rest period so that the grass can recuperate, the soil can digest the manure, the urine, and metabolize the material that, that went on it. And so, so you give this new ground, rested ground, new ground, rested ground. It's a, it's a kind of two, two sides of the thing. They both contribute a lot to the overall holistic positiveness of the program. In conventional farming, um, where they till the soil, is that kind of like an artificial way of trying to recreate that regenerating of the soil? Uh, well, I mean, animals don't actually till the soil. They, they aerate it. I mean, I guess pigs will. If, you know, pigs certainly till. But the herbivores and chickens scratch. But the cows, chickens, they don't actually rip up the sod like a plow would. Uh, mm -hmm. So that tillage is much more aggressive than animals would be. The freshening up, I call it the ecological exercise. The ecological exercise that the animals do when they are in mobbing situations, high density situations, like you see in nature, the reason they're mobbed up and, in, and, and dense is because there's a lion, a tiger, a, you know, something lurking around in the edges. And so that keeps the animals clumped up together. And that completely changes the way the, the, the physical interaction of hoof, foot, muzzle, and beak <laughs> on the <laughs> ground itself. So there's a light aeration, you know, as the animals go through a decapping of the soil, a chipping up of the, the lignified carbon stuff that's, that's old and, and dry and dead. They actually push onto the ground. So the earthworms and the actinomycetes and the mycelia and the fungi can come up, you know, and grab those things. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that for the soil biota, if a piece of carbon is a quarter inch above the soil surface, that would be equivalent to a hundred miles to you and I. So it's important that these animals press biomass onto the soil surface to stimulate the decomposition cycle and grow more forage in the future. And it all comes back in a cycle, right? What I've heard you talk about too in the past is, I think you called it self-affirmation of each species, like the pigness of the pig. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So we, we believe very strongly that life is not as mechanical as it is biological. Now, 
is there physics in life? Absolutely. Of course, there's mechanical thing. I mean, there's movement and leverage and all that. But in the big scheme of things, life is fundamentally biological, not mechanical. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that mechanical things don't think. They can neither think nor heal. If your wheel bearing goes out in your car, you can't park the car, let it rest, and tomorrow it'll be okay. You know, right. it doesn't, you know as opposed to, for example, a, a scratch on your hand, right? Uh, you put a Band-Aid on it, and in a week, you know, you've got new skin and, and it heals. That's the difference between, between biology and mechanics. Mm-hmm. And so in our culture right now, we have pretty much determined that, that life is fundamentally mechanical. It's, it's like a bunch of interchangeable parts and we can pull out this DNA, plug in this DNA and we can just kind of manipulate it and chemical fertilizer. Trust me, there's no life in chemical fertilizer or uh, glyphosate or, you know, there's no life there. In fact, much of the things that farmers apply to their fields, C-I-D-E, which is the Latin suffix for death, right? Hmm. And, and what we believe here is that, that life is fundamentally biological. That means it is reactionary. It's spontaneous. It is thinking. There's a sentience to nature. The trees respond to each other. The leaves respond to the grasshoppers, the flies, the cows, everything it has this awareness. Okay. It's obviously it's different in plants and in animals and all that, but there is a response. You can go out and hug the hood of your Maserati all day and say, <laughs> I'm in love with you. And that Maserati could care less. But if you go out and you put your arms around your milk cow, or even I would say your tomato plant and Mm -hmm. say, I love you. I care for you. There is a response. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get all weird and mystical on you, but this is life. Okay. This is, this is biology. There is a response there. And so we want to create a habitat that allows all these beings under our care from actinomycetes to cows we want all these beings to be able to enjoy a habitat that allows them to fully express their distinctive beingness you know the the chickenness of the chicken the pigness of the pig and and we believe that a culture that doesn't ask how to make happy pigs and only asks how do we grow them faster fatter bigger and cheaper will soon view itself, its own people with the same mechanistic attitude. If we're going to preserve the Thomas of Tom and the Janeness of Jane, okay, we have to preserve the pigness of pigs because that is ultimately the ethical moral framework. We can't start out here with the greatest of these. We've got to care for the least of these, those who can't speak for themselves. We create that ethical framework, that affirmation, that I respect you. You're important to me. Okay. And your distinctiveness is important to me. Yes. A pig has a snout. A chicken has a beak. A a cow has four stomachs. You know, those are important distinctives. And, um, you know, if I may, you know, 40, 50 years ago, when the scientists started telling us, we've got a new, a new way to, to grow these cows cheaper and and, and faster. We're going to grind up dead cows and feed them back to cows. (laughs) Okay, and they were taking farmers like me to free steak dinners to teach us this new, you know, scientific method of of feeding cows. Others like me, uh, but certainly our family, we looked at this and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where on earth does an herbivore eat carrion, you know, meat? And you look around the planet and, and you don't, they don't eat meat. 
okay? They're herbivores. We didn't buy into that procedure, not because we hated science or because we hated progress or even because we hated growing cheaper food, all right? We didn't buy into it because there was no authentic ecological template that this followed. It adulterated. It disrespected every template that we could see. Then, of course, we know what happened. 30, 40 years later, we have this big worldwide oops with uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease. And there was this big oops, maybe we shouldn't ought to done that, right? We realized that, ooh, you know, nature bats last and you better be careful how you cheat. Ooh, nature bats last. That's so true. When I think about the the industrialized meat industry, I mean, there's so much that's wrong with it. And and I think most people understand now, you know, them being fed crazy things shot up with antibiotics and living in these terrible close quarters. Um, there's so much that needs to change. At the same time, I think it's also important to look at where that desire comes from, right? We've been able to, with monocrop agriculture and, and with industrialized beef, been able to feed the world. And, you know, our population's gone up to almost 8 billion at this point. And not to turn this into a, a population discussion, but with regenerative ag, I'm fully behind you in terms of principle. I guess I wonder, can regenerative farming feed the world? Uh, you, you, you've hit one of the two most uh, common questions. The, the first one is, yeah, this is all nice and warm and fuzzy and it feels good, but can it feed the world? That's number one. Number two is, if it, even if it could, can we afford it? So the right. production volume is the first question and price comparison is the second question. So yes. um, obviously price is secondary to production because if you can't feed the world, then everything else is moot. And so the bottom line here is not only can we feed the world this way, it's the only way that ultimately will continue to feed the world because the other way is destroying our aquifers. We've got a dead zone now the size of Rhode Island and the Gulf of Mexico from the uh, pesticide chemical runoff, which imagine how much seafood used to be produced in that toxic zone. I mean, the side of Rhode Island, okay? This is, this is a big area. How many uh, shrimp, how many crabs, how many fish were produced in that, you know, what is now basically a dead zone? The real quick uh, story here is that coming into the 1900s, as cities began to urbanize and, and factories started to develop, and the, the energy explosion began to allow transportation, you know, railroads and, and automobiles. Uh, we got away from draft power and um, draft power is uh, animal power, a horse's mules. Um, we say this so seldom now, sometimes I say draft power and people look at me like draft power, draft. <laughs> I, 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 thought, I thought the military quit that back in Vietnam. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so um, as things developed in the early 1900s, we, we had the same question. How do we feed an expanding population? And so there were two threads of thought. One was that food is fundamentally mechanical. Let's make chemical fertilizer and uh, grow it cheaply. And there was another school of thought that said, no, nature is fundamentally biological and let's develop a carbon economy. And of course, the champions of those two were, you know, the Green Revolution, uh, Borlaug and, the, you know, all that on the one hand. On the other hand was Sir Albert Howard who uh, in 1943 finally took his life's work in India and presented to the world an agricultural testament, which is still kind of considered the, the granddaddy, the, the footers, the foundational footers of the sustainable agriculture movement. So think about 1943. So this is when 
Howard brought a carbon economy from a food and a fertility standpoint, brought that to the planet. Well, the planet was kind of occupied with something else in 1943, right? So now post-World War II, we've got all these stockpiles of bombs, which are made out of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And we've got now a huge built-up industry financed by the war machine with all these stockpiles. Meanwhile, you're a farmer. Maybe you've lost a son or two in the war. You've shoveled and shoveled and shoveled and shoveled and shoveled all your life, manure, straw, all this stuff. Somebody comes and says, hey, you can buy this bag of 10, 10, 10 and forget all that shoveling. Which would you pick? You, you know, just, I mean, hey, be gentle on great grandpa, okay? Be, be gentle. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I really mean this. I mean, they weren't evil. They certainly weren't evil intended. They were worn out and something easier, cheaper, and simpler seemed to be offered to them. And Sir Albert Howard said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We want to do composting. But remember, in 1943, we didn't have the chainsaw. We didn't have chippers. We didn't have plastic pipe. We didn't have front-end loaders on our tractors. We didn't have the efficient carbon movement infrastructure necessary for carbon to compete with chemicals until 20 years later. That's the problem with innovation. You have this chemical innovation and it preceded the compost innovation because the compost was not in a vacuum. Yeah, Albert Howard brought us our five-stage recipe for compost. Thank you very much, Sir Albert Howard. But where are we going to get the carbon? How are we going to do this? And I'm tired of shoveling. And it wasn't until the early 1960s that we really had a perfected chainsaw. We started having chippers, plastic pipe front end loaders on tractors, PTO powered manure spreaders, and all of those kinds of things that enabled us to metabolize Sir Albert Howard's thing. Well, in that 20 years, the chemical approach completely came to dominate agriculture, land grant universities, agriculture magazines, symposiums, the USDA, everything. Okay. And so our, I'm just going to say our side we, we were laid out of the gate, you know, we didn't have shoes yet, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and so when a starting gun fired in whatever, 1949, all right, let's, let's restart here. Let's grow food. The war's over. We're going to, our side, we didn't have a uniform or shoes yet. We were still standing over here naked without infrastructure, you know, unable to metabolize this carbon economy. Today, we have all this cool stuff and we can spin circles around the chemical approach, but it is highly entrenched in Wall Street, land grant, USDA, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is that if we had had a Manhattan project for compost, not only would we have fed the world, we would have done it without three-legged salamanders, infertile frogs, and a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. They really got a head start. <laughs> they did. They did. They, they got it. And, and, you know, that that principle of innovation is true in every facet of life. There's always this extreme innovator out here on the end. But mm-hmm. then you have this ragged edge of stuff underneath. Like one of the things right now is, for example, I mean, they're getting it under control, but it's taken about 20 years since e-commerce came in. It's taken about 20 years to fix the sales tax problem. You know, when sales tax came in, it was all predicated on a physical presence, a cash register, you know, a cha-ching, and and you extracted the sales tax at that point. Well, here came e-commerce, and suddenly all these localities, depending on on, on sales tax income for schools and roads and, and garbage pickup and whatever, 
suddenly that whole income stream dried up with e-commerce circumventing the whole sales tax thing. Now, I'm not interested in paying more taxes, don't get me wrong, but I do very much appreciate how a system predicated on a, a physical buyer-seller arrangement and you build your community services around that income flow, suddenly it's a shock when suddenly, yeah. oh, we're not getting those dollars anymore. They're not even being collected by these e-commerce giants. And so mm-hmm. gradually that has been rectified, but it, look, it's taken 20 years to finally you know, get regulations, legislation, and protocols in place to be able to that, that rectify something. That's, that's just a great example, I think, of exactly what we had when Sir Albert Howard brought scientific composting to agriculture, to the world, the world standing here, well, that's cool, but you know, how do we actually metabolize that? How do we assimilate it? How do we do it? And so it, it took about the same amount, about 20 years to actually get the ragged edge infrastructure developed enough to actually metabolize the composting process efficiently so that it could compete with chemical fertilizer. I don't remember hearing about Sir Albert Howard in my agriculture history or, you know, we were learning about the green revolution and, and all the pesticides and and things. So I think we need to rewrite some history books. (laughs) Yeah, well, we do. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, that Lewis Bromfield, who wrote um, Malabar Farm, Out of the Earth. He was, he was a very famous, um, imagine if John Grisham, uh, the author of all the lawyer novels, imagine if John Grisham suddenly bought a thousand acres and began a large-scale ecological farming. He would be featured in the New York Times. He'd be featured in Forbes magazine. He'd be featured, right? Mm. That would be a big deal. Well, that's what Lewis Bromfield was. He'd written something like 14 novels, was a globally, I mean, he was a friend of Lauren Bacall and, and you know, all these, these famous celebrities. And he bought this thousand acre place called Malabar Farm in Ohio and completely uh, rejuvenated it via, you know, ecological. He was so far ahead of his time. And, and he, was, he was up for secretary of agriculture in 1950, whatever, 51, 52, and then suddenly died. When you look back at the history, you just have to imagine, wow, what if he had actually been the Secretary of Agriculture in 1950? It would have fundamentally changed the sprint toward chemicals that was occurring, you know, post-World War II. And a lot of people have never heard of Lewis Bromfield. Do we need to get you in as Secretary of Agriculture? <laughs> oh man, I, Joel Salton for president. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd last a day. I don't think I'd last a day. Uh, so I do want to get back to big question number two: the practical side of you know how are we going to pay for this and where the logistics to actually shift a system because so much of our institutions are backing this industrial chemical model with all the subsidies and whatnot, does it make economic sense right now to shift in mass to a carbon-based system? Or not does it make sense, but how do we actually do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm glad you rephrased that because absolutely it makes (laughs) sense. In fact, it's the only thing that does make sense. So the question then is practically, you know, how do you do that? There are numerous pathways. First of all, let's just take the the cow, okay? The cow has gotten a lot of heat, right? For all sorts of things. And the problem is when you have the documentaries like Cowspiracy and these kind of things, I'm sitting there saying, preach it, brother, you know, amen. I'm sitting there going, all right, this is good. (laughs) Until they say, so the answer is, let's not have any cows. Right. And that's like saying, 
if I'm only familiar with bad marriages, I think we shouldn't have romance, you know? It, mm. it, so the, the problem is that the scientific community is not measuring data points from regenerative type protocols. They're measuring data points from feedlots, corn fed, soybean, blah, 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 chemical approach. And so when you collect your information from dysfunctional data points, chances are you're going to be led to an improper conclusion, right? I'll just give you one example on healthy pasture. So this isn't under corn. It's not under asphalt. It's not in your garden, okay? But under healthy perennial grasses. So perennials are ones that don't have to be planted all the time. They, they come back year after year. All right. In a healthy perennial pasture like this, it will produce enough methanotrophic bacteria so methanotrophic bacteria, that's a bacteria that reaches out and gobbles up methane, all right? And so these bacteria can got, metabolize, assimilate the methane that would be secreted by a thousand cows per acre. Well, nobody's going to have a thousand cows per acre, but that only happens in a very healthy pasture. If the pasture is overgrazed, if it is a single species, if it is tilled. In other words, your lawn doesn't do this. So this is under a pasture in which the plants are allowed to express themselves and get up. So the overgrazing is, is very real. And, and I, for one, very much appreciate that livestock has done a tremendous amount of damage globally, worldwide. But of course, so has monocropping, so has cotton, so has peanuts, soybeans, I mean, uh, sugar, sugar cane. I mean, there's been a lot of problems from cropping. When it comes to practice, Here's a couple things. One is within a year or two, we could change all the herbivores, all the herbivores to this, uh, what I call mob stocking, herbivorous solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. A and if we did that globally, we could raise way more livestock than we're currently raising and we would sequester way more carbon than we're sequestering. Like on our farm right now, 50 years ago, we averaged 1% organic matter. Today, we average 8% organic matter. Organic matter is not pure carbon, but it's a, it's a kissing cousin, all right? They're very closely uh, corroborated. So we can do that. Well, where are we going to get all this carbon? Well, what we need to do is start stewarding our forest lands. Think of how much carbon is being burned up right now in our all these fires, we need to start chipping those, cutting them and doing large scale composting. What we do is we transfer the money currently going to petroleum based chemical fertilizer. We transfer that money to forest management and stewardship. And that's how you create a carbon economy. You simply transfer all that money that's going into chemical petroleum based product and you transfer it actually to carbon in real time right now, and you go to large scale composting. That then in turn builds soil and actually feeds earthworms, feeds the mycorrhizae, feeds the actinomycetes, so you build soil. Here's the other thing that does. It actually gets people out on the land, connected, interacting, viscerally participating in the healing project, rather than working in some laboratory somewhere, concocting petroleum-based stuff. When we have a land healing mentality to our economy, suddenly 
mommy, daddy come home from work and the child says, well, what did you do all day? And they get to tell their child, we participated in the carbon economy growing earthworms so that you can have soil when you grow up and become our age. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that's not a noble, sacred calling, I don't know what is. And so we suddenly, we suddenly defer all this toxicity over here. We simply exchange those dollars for healing dollars over here and it all works. I love that. The land healing economy. It sounds wonderful. I want to be a part of it. Yes. So follow-up question. Does this mean that food to consumers will be more expensive? That's a tough question. In general, we pay too little for food. The fact is that you cannot have a respected ecosystem and a cheap food policy. Think about that. In other words, if your goal is the cheapest food, what does that say about your caregiving of the umbilical, the womb that produces that food? Who wants to be the cheapest mother? Who wants to be the, the cheap? You know what I'm saying? When cheapness becomes the driving force of anything, we tend to not get the best. In general, we do pay too little for food. That being said, there are a lot of ways to stretch your dollars in buying good food. For example, you buy a whole chicken instead of boneless, skinless breast. Right now, today, you could buy a polyface chicken for less per pound than boneless, skinless breast at Walmart and Costco. Hmm. What you begin doing is you begin participating in the culinary end of this, buying whole foods, buying unprocessed, and you use your own kitchen for preparing, packaging, preserving, and you begin participating in that food system. You know, the biggest lie in the world is that we can change the world and I don't have to change. (laughs) That's the biggest lie in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. let's change the world but don't change me. I'm still going to go on vacation where I want. I'm still going to go buy what I want. I'm still going to go eat what I want. I'm still going to do what I want with my free time. Nothing could be further from the truth. If we're going to change the world, we each need to look in the mirror and say, can I get on the team? What will it mean when I get on the team? And what it means is that you start thinking intentionally about your ecological umbilical. So when all the tomatoes in your area are coming right, right before frost. You cancel that Caribbean cruise and you get two bushels of blemished tomatoes at the end of the season. And you and your friends get together and make, and make a homemade pasta and can it, you know, for winter, or you make tomato juice. It means in the fall when the apples are ripe, you buy bushels of apples and you make applesauce. Mm. It's fun. It's, it, it, it's communal. It's, I mean, millennials love community, right? Well, let's, let's build community around culinary expertise. And every time you do that, you defund. If you want to defund something, let's defund Monsanto. Let's defund Procter & Gamble. Let's defund, are you with me? Let's defund, you know, uh, Red Dye 29 and the sugar industry. And okay. And we do that when we actually participate in our food system, take responsibility and simply cut off the funding of all these big, bad corporations that make food that's not worth eating. I mean, I'm, I'm all about getting friends together and cooking up a big meal. It does sound like work. And I think that's what you're saying is to participate. You know, you got to be a team player and, and actually yeah. participate. Yeah. Well, 
And look, I don't want to be a cultist about this. I'm an 80-20 guy. Get 80% right, you can fudge on 20, all right? Yeah, you can have a pizza party, okay? So, But, but 80-20, all right? Think about 80-20. When you look at what's on that plate, squint your eyes, look through it. What do you see on the other side? How far is it to the farm? How much processing, high temperature, and adulteration has gone into it? and subsidies, and broken dreams, and asthma, and MRSA, and C. diff, or do you see, directly on the other side, do you see an aesthetically, aromatically, sensually romantic farm with a happy family and a very near chain of custody? What Mm. do you see through that? The other thing about price is, buying unprocessed is a big deal. The second thing about price is that that to buy in, in bulk. If you invest in a freezer, which isn't that expensive, you can buy, you know, a quarter of beef or a half a hog. You can buy volume. And farmers like me, we love giving 10, 15, 20% discounts for volume purchases. That's a huge way to reduce the price. And finally, I would just say anyone who complains about price, I say quickly, here, let's go to your house. And I'm sure here's what we're not going to see. We're not going to see lottery tickets. We're not going to see fine wine. We're not going to see takeout. We're not going to see Uber Eats. And I have nothing against Uber Eats. I'm just, that's expensive, all right? I'm sure you're familiar uh, with the movie Food, Inc. Well, love the movie. I mean, obviously, I love the movie. But they perpetuated this one myth where they had this family, remember, that went to Burger King and, and bought that one-gallon drink and a Biggie Fries and a, <laughs> a burger, you know? And then, and then they went to the store and said, well, we can't buy vegetables because, you know, we can't afford vegetables. Well, the fact is that you could buy two pounds of my world-class Primo ground beef, all right, for the price of that meal. There's more nutrition in one pound of my ground beef. I mean, at farmer's market, you know, the lady comes up, you know, and she's drinking a can of diet soda saying, (laughs) what? $5 a dozen for eggs. I would never pay $5 a dozen for eggs. I'm saying, ma'am, there's more nutrition in one of my eggs than there is that in that dollar can of soda you've got in your hand. It's a matter of values. It's a matter of values. And what we see on our plate routinely expresses our values, not only for money, but for time. You'll love this because it's about men. Right now, the, the average American male between 25 and 35 and you may not have very many 25 to 35 year old males listening to this uh, podcast. Uh, I, I hope that all the 25 to 35 year old wives listening to this will, will make their husbands listen to this. But <laughs> the average 25 to 35 year old male in America right now spends 20 hours a week playing video games. So, so where are my values? That is an expression of my values. Simon Sinek wrote this wonderful book about millennials. And he says, you know, millennials are all about convenience, community, and caring. And I love that. I'm not a millennial. I'm an old geezer. I'm a baby boomer, okay? (laughs) But I love that about millennials. And I'm surrounded by millennials in our stewardship, apprenticeship program. And and I love that, okay? Well, the one that's not there is consistency. (laughs) I can also relate to that. And so, you know, it's a lot easier to raise a banner, write a nasty email, make a a nasty Facebook post. It's harder to actually look at our plate with the same righteousness upon which we might fight some of these other battles. 
what you mentioned a minute earlier around this 80-20 principle of, you know, you, you don't have to be perfect all the time. No, I no. think it's about prioritization, right? You know, my family was a first-generation immigrant family. We didn't have anything, really. We also shopped at the thrift store and got secondhand. But my parents prioritized having good, healthy, high-quality food. You know, that was something that we spent money on and invested in was good nutrition. Well, that's right. And you got to remember that, I mean, look, I, I love America. I know you do. But we have a real problem. If you travel the world and you ask any other culture in the world, what comes to your mind when you say America food? Hamburger. Uh, <laughs> McDonald's, McDonald's. Yeah. It, it, it comes up every single time. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. It, it always comes up McDonald's. So think about that. That is our food culture DNA is McDonald's. <laughs> it, it's, it's just a horrendous thought. I mean, you know, compared to the wonderful food cultures of China and Vietnam and Laos and Thailand and Sweden, and I mean, name any other country in the world. And you have these wonderful specialties from wok cooking to salmon in Norway. You got these wonderful things. And America, our contribution to the global food lexicon is McDonald's. If, if that's the pinnacle of our contribution, realize that that has ramifications throughout the food supply. And so you need to begin, begin questioning all orthodox food sources. And starting to opt out, and that's this 80-20, okay? Uh, maybe you're at, you know, 0-100 today, 100% bad, 0% good, okay? Well, can you make it 10-90? Start to chip into that. One of the beauties of where we are right now is that it is more available than it's ever been. There are more farmers like us available, and, and distribution logistics make it much easier to actually get it shipped to your doorstep. We now ship nationwide. 10 years ago, that would have been impossible. But distribution logistics have been innovated by FedEx and Amazon and, and UPS. You can fuss at them if you want to, but they have brought an efficiency of distribution that is competing very well with the bricks and mortar supermarket price. I'm real excited about the opportunity in the future for farmers to directly access individuals with really high quality food. It's never been easier. It's a click of a button away and it can be on your doorstep. You can vet through websites. Is there, you know, somebody that says they're clean food advocates or whatever, natural, what's on the background, you know, and you, and you see five Tyson chicken houses. Well, that probably isn't <laughs> what you're looking for. So you can look for provenance. Do they encourage farm visits or do they have no trespassing signs? Do you have to make appointments? You know, we have a 24 seven, 365 open door policy. Anyone can come and visit from anywhere in the world at any time to see anything unannounced. That's our level of transparency. And I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I'm just saying that the more transparency there is, the more comfortable you can feel with the choice. Well, I think that's a great stopping point. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your energy with us today, Joel. If folks are interested in learning more about you and, and following along your journey, where can they find you? Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E. That website has everything where I'm speaking, all of our food availability, our farm philosophy, our value system, and the gatherings that we have. We host several gatherings here a year of everything from economics to self-improvement to food and fitness. So check that out as well. Come for a tour. We do lunatic tours. A lot of wealth of information there. Just uh, polyfacefarms.com and, and jump on. 
Amazing. Maybe we'll have to do a farm to future special tour or something. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.